Welcome to Next in Nonprofits. I'm Steve Boland, and I am very pleased to be joined today by Michael Johnston, the founder at HJC, and Ryan Miller, director of nonprofit services at Care2. Ryan and Michael, thank you so much for taking the time to be here. Thanks for having us, Steve. Pleasure to be here. Um, asked both of you to come in and talk about the digital outlook for 2018. It's a report that you've done collectively with a couple of other partners. But before we dive into the specifics of that, um, Ryan, can you just tell us a little bit more about Care2 and the work that you do there? Sure, I'd be happy to. So Care2 is an online community of about 44 million people, basically who care about causes and issues. And what we do is offer a service that personally I like to describe as a kind of online matchmaking platform. Um, similar to a, some sort of, you know, like eHarmony or Match.com between Care2 members on one side, and they show us what causes and issues they care about, and nonprofits on the other side who are basically looking for new high-quality supporters. And so we essentially act like high-volume, high-quality matchmakers between our members and nonprofits. Great. Thank you. And Michael, a little bit about HJC? Sure. So we, we um, HAC began in 1992 uh, as a traditional uh, direct response fundraising agency, so direct mail and telephone. And then very early on, 1995, 96, we started looking at digital. And, and since then, we've become an omni-channel and integrated marketing and fundraising agency working in Canada and the U.S. Uh, and internationally. So both of you are bringing some skills to the table in terms of uh, nonprofit organizations and their digital outreach, their, what, what that looks like. And of course, that's often around developing community support and fund development work, uh, not exclusively those things. But um, you've got other partners in the report. And um, Ryan, why don't you just kind of kick us off with the other people that also contributed to the creation of the Digital Outlook report? Absolutely. Um, the... A digital outlook report is a collaborative effort between Care2 and HJC, and in addition to those two organizations, also N10, um, the nonprofit technology uh, network, and the Resource Alliance, um, who are based in Europe and serve a primarily um, European market. And it's a, it's actually uh, the the three first organizations, HJC, Care2, and N10. Um, we're at this for a year or two. Um, and then we invited the Resource Alliance to join us. And it's been the, the four organizations each bring something different um, to the Digital Outlook Report. Um, and it, it's actually kind of a, a, a beautiful partnership. Great. So wonderful to hear that there's a collaboration between all of these folks that have got uh, perspectives all over. But um, Michael, why did you in the first place uh, get together with these partners and say we need to start talking uh, more directly and more kind of globally around uh, the the impact of digital strategies and the impact of digital tools on this on this sector? Well, I think big picture, uh, and Ryan would agree, that, that there's a dearth of uh, resources, perspectives, um, thought papers, research in, in the charitable and social impact sector. So one of the main driving forces was organizations, big and small, need to, to see the horizon, uh, to be able to understand what's happening in the sector by all of us talking to one another and gathering that information. So, so 
that's really the motivator that we we don't have enough uh, of who we are and what we're doing out there to help one another. Uh, and and then two, I think all of us uh, believe in capacity building. Uh, that white papers and research and resources can uh, can help direct us. And by being directed, we can then take our limited resources and and help each other and help ourselves, especially around digital in this case. Mm -hmm. So in order to do that, I think getting a, a lay of the land out there uh, is really important. And um, you've got a pretty broad range of participation in understanding some of these questions and some very specific topics we want to get to in a minute um, about the 2018 work specifically. But can you just talk about how do you, uh, uh, and, and Ryan, I'll ask you to kind of kick us off on this, how do you um, get charities and others to um, give you that information about what are you doing, what are you seeing, so that it can be collected and collaborated. Yeah, we send out, so the the, the way, the process starts with us creating, um, four organizations getting together and creating a survey, and then we basically distribute that survey and we ask um, uh, all the people in our networks to respond to that survey. And it's with the responses of, of um, that specific survey that we essentially kind of compile all the data that turns into the report. Um, so we, the, the our major kind of promotional uh, pushes are through our email lists. And in addition to that, through social media, um, basically kind of the, the ways in which you can reach the masses these days. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I, I honestly don't know what the total number is of people that, that all four organizations reach out to, but I mean, my guess would be, uh, I don't know, uh, 150,000 plus maybe. It's hard to say. But in addition to that, the social media reach makes it uh, a number that's actually kind of hard to quantify. And and and, and just to add to that, we, we've tried to make the survey um, uh, as short as possible, but uh, as impactful as we can make it. Because again, people in nonprofits have limited resources. <laughs> they are wearing many hats, they have very little time. And, and so we try to make the survey um, as quick, but helpful as as we can. And, and you know, as long as, and we often see, you know, five to six to 700 organizations per year uh, who have the time uh, to fill it out. And, and those are the kinds of numbers we need to have something we feel confident in. Right. Well, and our, you know, I, I think the looking at the responses and the questions that you've asked, at least in the in the published version, and we'll get into how people can download the report and read it directly um, towards the end. But uh, the the amount that you're asking for isn't overly burdensome, and I really appreciate that. And I think that's a good message for charities to think about in their own work that we we cannot ask our supporters to just continue to give us every possible detail that we would love to have. We've really got to be sensitive to what's the right amount of engagement that people are willing to. To contribute so that you don't get to page 67 of the survey and go, oh, for Pete's sake, and just click <laughs> off, right? You know, I'm just exactly. done with this thing. Mm -hmm. uh, so one of the things that you did um, try to ground in is a little bit of who did take the time to respond. And I found this particularly interesting that um, the um, the number of uh, full-time staff people as a um, measure of sort of size of organization. Um, and of course, there's all, all sorts of ways to measure what a organizational size would be. Um, but the, the largest, if I'm reading this correctly, I think I am the largest uh, single um, 
measure there was for organizations with more than 76 employees at 31% of the respondents. Um, so you've, you've got that time from organizations that have some staff capacity to think about these issues, that have the experience to, to dive in a little bit. Certainly lots of participation on down into smaller groups, but that that was interesting to me that you um, got the, the largest plurality from fairly well-staffed organizations to contribute what they know. Yeah, and, th and that makes some sense that they they have the time, right? They have the staffing, they have the structure um, to, to be able to carve out on the side of their desk the time uh, to fill this survey out. But when I look at uh, the size of the organizations to pick up on what you're saying, we, we kind of have bookends. Yeah. <laughs> on, on one side, we have the one to five people, 26%. Uh, and then we have uh, the much larger organizations with scores of staff, uh, taking up almost 32% of the respondents. And for, uh, for me, it's just a reminder of um, the depth uh, uh, and size uh, and diversity of the charitable and social impact sector, especially in North America, where there are many, many mom and pop shops right. making the world a better place. And, and then there are the larger, more professional organizations. And I'm glad to see that we've um, got both small and large. Yeah, I think that as I'm looking at those uh, numbers, it um, it still seems uh, because there are so many unstaffed nonprofit organizations out there that are completely volunteer driven, that if you look at just the number of NGOs in the United States as a as a subset, um, let alone other parts of the world, um, they they do kind of overwhelm with the the local PTA, the local scout troop, hmm. whatever. They're incorporated as a nonprofit, but they don't have any staff capacity at all. It's all driven that way. If we remove them from the picture, and look mm. at just, you know, who's able to at least have one paid staff person, you know, yeah. um, the number of charities overall becomes substantially smaller um, because mm. there are mm -hmm. so many of those um, all volunteer things who really aren't trying to grow mission dramatically in a lot of cases, right? You know, those, mm -hmm. those local scout troops are there to serve their local scout troop. They're not trying to take over the other scout troops next to them. They're not trying to expand services, you know, <laughs> and that's fine. Those have great places to be. There's a lot they can still learn from what's in this report. Yeah. Um, but I do think that um, a lot of your recommendations are how do we do better? How do we improve on what we've learned from this survey? Um, and I think there, probably having some staff capacity makes sense. There better be at least one person who's around to take action on some of these recommendations um, in order to fully um, leap forward from them. I mean, Ryan, do you think that that's a, a good read or are there? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I do, Steve. I think that, I, and and the truth is there's, I mean, I think this is a bit of a good bias, but I think innately, those of us who wrote the report, compiled the data and wrote the report, we tend to be, uh, because of who we are and what we do professionally, a little bit focused on organizations who are trying to level up to some extent or right. starting to think about leveling up. So to your point, um, I absolutely agree that there's a lot of organizations who are kind of mom and pop and um, or sort of PTA style, you know, they've got a mission, it's pretty localized um, and, and stays consistent year over year. And and uh, hopefully they can take a number of valuable things away from this report, but it's nevertheless absolutely true that the nature and focus of this report is on organizations that have, you know, at least one staff person and are trying to basically level up in some way. Yeah, and I want to pick up on that. And this is a reference now to 
to the report that we've done now in its fourth year um, that I think uh, if people have a chance to go and download all of the reports, uh, they're going to begin to see trends and connections that help organizations both big and small. So in the case of um, organizations that have one to five staff uh, and we're talking about growing mission, uh, being more effective, uh, and we're concentrating on being better at digital, whether that's um, you know doing email better, doing mobile uh, more effectively. Uh, you'll look at last year's report and the year before, and we're talking um, how do you find you know younger staff um, you know to grow the organization in mission uh, to be more effective in digital. Um, how do you get entries of people coming out of college as people who are digitally native and fluent, uh, who can take action on some of these uh, report recommendations uh, to grow impact or grow fundraising, wh whatever that is. So going back and reading some of the past reports, I think organizations uh, who are smaller will see the kinds of things they need to be more effective from a structural and kind of staffing perspective, uh, and then connect that to a report uh, from this year on what they should be concentrating on. Mm -hmm. And one, la one last point uh, to piggyback off that. we The way we structure these reports, and Steve, you see this because you've read this, is it's it's honestly part report, part white paper, right? right. It's, it's not just a report. Um, we, uh, we, that's a very conscious focus on our part um, because we, I mean, we want it to be readable and digestible ab above all else so that the um, the main points can be easily taken away and applied. Um, and we also are focused on not just the data points, but the bigger picture. As Mike was saying, like let's let's kind of like look at the horizon and try and gauge what is uh, you know what is coming up, um, what's here, what's coming up, and what we should be focusing on for next year. And therefore, um, it makes sense for us to have essentially not just to focus on kind of the numbers, but also um, good chunks of text where we can dive a little bit deeper into the issues. Um, and so that's why that's why you see this kind of this mix of you know it's a sort of white paper slash report. Yeah, and and I want to emphasize one more thing. And Ryan, I'm not sure we've talked about this before, but um, to to create authenticity with with a digital report, um, many of our collaborative authors over the last number of years are younger, not older. And mm. so you know there are veterans um, who are editing, massaging, and giving veteran perspective. But but some of our collaborative authors uh, who are writing these reports are um, newer to the sector and being able to dig in and give their perspective. And then in this sense of collaboration, um, the editors and the other participants um, have, you know, greater longevity in the sector and they kind of season and and look at this report. So I'm pretty proud that that some of the co-authors are um, very new to the sector and they're taking their fresh eyes at what they're seeing in the study and the, and then we're layering on that veteran perspective. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think um, good to have that new challenge all the time to um, poke at assumptions that might be out there, really useful. One of the other things I think particularly useful about understanding the types of responses we may see here though is the question you asked about um, 
does your organization have staff dedicated to digital strategy? Um, and um, just over half of the respondents did. But if we take a look at the, um, again, sort of staff size question, um, you know, reaching down to as many as organizations that have at least, you know, 26 or 30 staff members and then all the way on up, you know, that I think kind of corresponds nicely to that number of yes. And it would be really interesting to me to, you know, if there's any way to disaggregate that data and poke in to go, well, how many organizations that only have 10 employees have got, you know, a dedicated digital staff kind of responsible person? Um, of the people that said they didn't have a, a dedicated person, you do say that there are some that don't have a paid staff person that have a volunteer or an intern or somebody like that that is um, kind of in that area. But I, I find that that balance of do you need to get to 25 or 30 people before you get to the point where it seems like on average you're going to have a dedicated digital staffer or do you get a sense that that's not dependent on staff size? It's much more about mission and outreach strategy. Oh, that's such a good question. Can I can I take a, a, an initial crack at this? I love that question. Um, I see this all the time. One of the, one of the things that's a that's like a, a such a distinct benefit from doing what I do and doing what Mike does is that we get the um, the advantage of working with multiple organizations, right? Um, and I say this very respectfully to all of my clients and all of Mike's clients who are inside. But I get the the benefit of this um, seeing the forest for the trees, as does Mike. And I, what I what I can absolutely unequivocally say is that it does not depend on the size of the organization. This is one of these things that seems like um, seems like a challenge or a barrier. Um, that that's really easy to be like, oh well, you know, we're not thirty people, or we're not the humane society. What could we possibly do? And it's absolutely not true. Some of the most innovative, kind of like uh, digitally mature, or you know, I can use a number of terms like 2.0, quote unquote, um, uh, organizations that I've seen are smaller and newer. What I see that now this there's absolutely exceptions to this, but what I see is um, there's there tends to be a correlation between the age of the organization. Yeah. Um, and so sometimes that means size, right? Sometimes older organizations are larger, certainly. And sometimes the newer ones are smaller, certainly. But it's less, uh, size is not the first um, kind of determinant. Um, it's much more about the age of the organization. And therefore, uh, really what I'm saying is newer organizations that are starting in the last, you know, mm -hmm. five-ish years, um, tend to be able to be much more kind of um, digital first and 2.0 in their very nature um, and don't have, also part of this is very simply um, the age of the organization, the way things used to be at nonprofits are were, was so innately siloed. And I don't mean this as a, as a as a overt criticism. That's just the way things used to be and that's the way channels used to be, right? Fundraising was so distinct from campaigns and you know and or communications and the way um the, the thing about digital is that it's this this beautiful trojan horse that busts down silos whether you sort of want it to or not right digital is going to march on into fundraising even if it was even if it was supposed to kind of stay quiet and in the the comms corner um yeah that yeah. Yeah, I know. I agree. And I, I'd layer on one more thing, Ryan, that we've seen in the report over the last few years, and that's um, you know, either digitally successful, digital savvy, or um, you know, digitally wise organizations, big or small, um, often get a push or get there 
with leadership who understand. So oh, yeah. in the last few years, we've talked about the role of leadership uh, within organizations to be um, digitally successful. So um, we, we talk about either educating uh, decision makers um, around risk, right? Investment, change management, longer term perspective uh, and the role of digital so the you know the the more you can get leadership or decision makers on side to understand what it takes um, then you know those investments you know that risk tolerance and that perspective on change management um, help an organization whether that's to hire the first person or or hire the tenth person for digital now, I really appreciate that comment, especially about the uh, age of the organization as a factor of, you know, if you were starting today, what infrastructure would you put in place rather than if you were starting 30 years ago, what infrastructure would you put in place? And if you've got the infrastructure for a, a fairly sophisticated direct mail campaign because um, you've built it over decades, uh, you know, of course, you know, you continue to use it. Maybe that sucks up a lot of resources. You, you don't branch out as quickly. If you don't have that, uh, I think digital first absolutely is the the way that most emerging organizations are going to go. They may never get to the point of that more sophisticated uh, um, postal mail strategy, the telephone um, campaigns. You know, the, it it may well be that as they grow with these tools, they find them just more effective bang for the buck kinds of things, and they don't pick up the ones that we used way back in the day because that was the only tools we had available mm -hmm. um, way back in the day. Mm -hmm. So interesting to me, but I do want to get into the sum and substance because you, you've you um, done a nice job, I think, of keeping the report um, something that is really easy for um, any charity to learn from quickly. Um, but you broke in sort of three chapters of learning. And I, I love that we begin uh, with email. Uh, you specifically call it email deliverability. Uh, but that idea of um, despite all the flashiness of every other little cool thing that might be out there um, with with gigaws and bells and whistles on it, um, our workhorse continues to be email. And we should not um, shy away from that conversation about uh, if this is going to be a successful tactic, how do we get people to actually get open and act on those darn things that we've been sending them? <laughs> Yeah, it's absolutely true. So uh, you've got a lot of specific um, recommendations in here about deliverability. And um, I don't know, uh, um, Michael, why don't you kick us off on sure. uh, learnings and recommendations for organizations that maybe aren't measuring their deliverability uh, uh, just yet uh, and, and hadn't thought too much about that, that maybe they have this idea that if they send an email, everybody gets it and opens it. That's right. So, so I think the big picture for us, and, and we see it with other uh, industry leaders like Steve McLaughlin and either from Blackbaud around data hygiene, because that's really what we're talking about. Um, you know, w w whether that's within the CRM or whether that's within the email management system. So big picture, uh, we concentrated on this as one of the three um, pillars this year, because you know, the data hygiene, whether that's an email, uh, data hygiene, whether that's uh, a supporter record, uh, is, is what we're really getting at around email deliverability. And so um, I, I think you're right. I think lots of organizations, big and small, um, just think that uh, the electronic ether safely delivers um, all of these things. Uh, and so, you know, in this, um, you know, in chapter one, we're talking about planting that email deliverability seed. And so we've written this report and we write it every year uh, to really be in the hands of change agents within an organization. And so um, there are many organizations who do not think about uh, email hygiene. Uh, and so 
that number one point of planting this seed is, you know, writing this report to, to give a number of pages to have someone within an organization play that role, uh, whether they're a volunteer, whether they're a full-time staff person. I mean, that's, that, that's first and foremost, the most important thing. Someone needs to play that role. Um, and does that does that make sense, Ryan? Did it anything does. for you to add? Yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah, I do. One 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 thing that it helps me to think of of email. I, I like this. Hopefully, uh, other people like this too. I like to think of email in the in the digital universe. Email is the workhorse. Email is like mm -hmm. direct mail, right? Mm -hmm. Direct mail, fifteen. I mean, you know, even ten, but fifteen years ago, for sure, was the absolute workhorse that drove most organizations. Drove the revenue. And email in the digital universe, that's email. And, and so the thing about email um, uh, deliverability and really email hygiene and data hygiene, these are, these are kind of terms that we can uh, throw around that really get to more or less the same idea, is you have to, it's not just about the size. It's not just about the, the quantity or size of your list. It has to be about quality. And what we're seeing in the last couple of years, and this for, for sure is driven by um, larger organizations and care Two is an example of this sort of organization. We have 44 million members, not, not hundred percent of those are active. Um, but it means that we have email addresses for a huge number of people. Um, and we need to pay close attention to the hygiene of our list. So that means if there's a number of bad emails, um, that hurts us to keep them on our list, right? So it's not, we can, there's no big number that uh, that any of us should be bragging about when it comes to our email list. We should care much more about the hygiene and the health. You, It matters much more to have a smaller list that is responsive and active and engaged, and opening up your emails and doing what you wanna do rather than a large email list that is not doing that as much. And you know, in which case you can also be starting to get in trouble from your ISP, you can, you start, you can start to be labeled as spam, et cetera, et cetera. So that's why the quality matters. Mm. And, and that's true. So I wanted to pick up on that. I mean, there, when you read the email section here, we're, we're talking about the quality of the list, the quality of the content, and, and the quality of the conversations that can be delivered. Because what, what I notice, and I'm sure Ryan sees the same, that there are many email management systems out there um, tied um, to CRMs systems that can deliver segmented, personalized marketing automation um, for organizations, big or small, marketing automation experiences that can improve open rates, click-throughs, conversions, and they're not being used. So, so I think a vast majority of nonprofit organizations have the technology on hand to be able to deliver a better and more segmented and personalized journey um, for email recipients, and they're not doing it. They're treating it as a mass marketing um, exercise when they don't have to, and when when the philanthropic consumer is actually having a commercial experience every day that's highly personalized and segmented, uh, it, and and that organization commercially understands them through email. We're not doing that on the nonprofit side. So mm -hmm. so you can see in this chapter we're talking about deliverability as the quality of the list, but then we begin to talk about the quality of the content that's delivered and really the quality of the conversations. Um, by email and, and we're not getting to that yet. 
Right. I want to quickly unpack a couple of things that were just thrown out there. Um, you mentioned mm -hmm. that uh, poor list management, um, big uh, undeliverable rates, big spam reports, that kind of thing will will impact how the rest of the list performs, uh, and and might impact. Uh, um, Ryan, you said your from your ISP, from mm -hmm. an internet service provider or or a host for these things. Again, many of these charities, of course, are not sending email from their own host. Um, they've got a, a service that's aggregated to do that for them, um, but that means they're not probably taking advantage of it. And so, Michael, when you said that there are these CRM systems, these customer relationship management, consumer relationship management, client relationship management, whatever you want to call the, mm -hmm. the, the C part of the CRM for you, um, that you've got this opportunity that that mail is going to be sent out not by your you know individual Gmail account or your you know little uh, instance of Outlook or whatever you're using, mm -hmm. but by something that is going to measure that impact a lot better. It, it's also looking at right what comes through. Uh, um, mm -hmm. I was working with a client the other day who, um, uh, when we looked at the hard bounces and what had been cleaned out and removed from the list, um, mm -hmm. they, they were like, but but so-and-so, you know, was just at an event the other day. Like, but but the email address that they signed up with was uh, associated to a workplace they're no longer at. Um, just because you are seeing them doesn't mean they're still in email contact with you. If they're not updating their list when they leave their job or they switch email providers or whatever, that that bounce is happening. You're just not as cognizant of it as maybe you could be if you were paying attention and you've got in here in your recommendations, how are you testing? Who is looking um, to see what those mm -hmm. things are? Uh, that we don't just send it out and look at the open rate, but that you send it out, you look at the open rate, the engagement rate, the click-throughs, all the rest of it, and um, who did we lose? And can we get them back if we know that it was just, you know, that they've, they're not disinterested in our mission, their role just changed, they left that job, whatever it was. Mm -hmm. And and for, for small organizations, it becomes even more important, right? Because their lists are smaller. Um, their right. relationship, relationships may be fewer, but more intimate and important. So, so that back end is super important for small organizations when they look at this report. I, and I do want to jump in on that idea of list segmentation for a moment. If we talk about um, commonly used tools for email management for nonprofit organizations, you get into the, uh, the, the quote, free levels of services, close okay. quote, uh, the, the mail chimps of the world, that kind of okay. thing, um, where, you know, if you're only got a couple thousand members on your list, you're not actually paying as long as you're sending fewer than 12,000 messages a month, that, that kind of deal. Um, but those tools have that, as you were saying, Michael, have that list segmentation stuff built in and allow you to do that um, that segmentation piece where not everybody gets the same message every time. And it isn't that you are personalizing down to the person, but rather to the level of engagement in your mission and the the areas of interest. So that, and uh, I, I do this with some folks that I work with, too, where we're sending email newsletters to maybe only 100, 150 people mm -hmm. out of a three or 4,000 person list or a 10,000 person list, mm -hmm. because those are the ones that are ready for that extra message, the more mm -hmm. engagement. And, you know, if we spammed absolutely everybody with every message all the time, most of those folks would unsubscribe. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And we've got to be really careful about this segmentation of some people want increased communication and would be more engaged, but we need to have people be able to step into it and letting that list segmentation function work for you can be really powerful. Absolutely. You're talking about the ladder of engagement, right? So, yeah. yeah, absolutely. 
Um, so good. There's more recommendations about that in the report, and and I I think we could spend the next 15 minutes talking about that, but we we'll, we'll lose all of our time. And there's other stuff um, that you are are calling out here for charities to think about. And so let let's move on to chapter two about mobile optimization. Uh, and I do think that here there there maybe is some awareness of uh, do you have a mobile responsive site as something that charities should do, but not necessarily that every charity understands really what does that mean uh, and uh, how do we test it and, and those kinds of questions. So um, Ryan, could you just um, kind of walk through a little bit of some of the findings on mobile optimization as you um, surveyed your audience and what you were finding? Yeah, I think this is one of the areas, um, unlike uh, the first chapter with email deliverability, where uh, a high percentage of respondents said they knew that this was important. Um, I think in theory, as consumers, as mobile phone owners, we all and all the respondents understand vaguely the opportunity <laughs> of mobile. But where, where the the real discrepancy is, is, um, is the specifics. It's like how to really kind of leverage and harness the opportunity of mobile. Um, and, and, and to your point, kind of where to start, right? So, um, so 70% 70, 70 use responsive design, that's good. Um, only 30% use SMS. Now that, that might not, that, that's a really kind of a, um, a specific stat and depends on organizations and campaigns and the, the kind of need. Um, but only half, like one of the things that stands out for me is only half, 52% have a mobile optimized version of their site. And yet we know that consumers, just human beings in, you know, in the US and Canada and Europe are um, using their phones more and more to do absolutely everything. And also only half of our respondents have a mobile optimized version of the site. So is that because it's probably not because they don't see the value. It's probably because um, it's hard to find the budget slash hard to make the case internally um, for, you know, so in making the case internally r relates to budget and capacity um, and resources more generally. So I think that I think that this mobile optimization is actually uh, is almost like uh, holding nonprofits to a kind of under a digital microscope where we start to see some of some of the, the sort of fraying edges, right? They see, they know there's an opportunity, they know they can't get left behind, but they don't know where to start and how to make the case. Before you move on on that, Michael, or, or either of you, let me ask you to sort of differentiate a responsive design site from a mobile optimized version of a site um, and kind of help us understand those those two different measures you're talking about. And I don't, whoever would want to jump in on that. Mike can go. Sure. Um, so, and I'm not the responsive expert here, um, but responsive design uh, is building um, from scratch, right? So, so building um, something from beginning to end that's built for mobile. Um, mobile optimization is using, you know, um, techniques around, um, the software itself uh, to be able to detect what's coming in. So one is building on top of the other. Um, one is building from scratch. Um, in some ways, it's the same thing, but one demands uh, a little more development perspective and planning, which is the hard part and investment. And one is simply adapting what you've already got. So in the case of a version of their site. And, and so many organizations 
I would say this is very interesting because Ryan is starting to connect to, I'm connecting Ryan's um, point about younger organizations are probably mm -hmm. using responsive design from the mm -hmm. beginning. Mm -hmm. and, and I bet you uh, mobile optimization is what, what organizations who have the traditional silos um, will get to. I mean, the one thing I wanted to add on top of that around making the case, Ryan, is um, we just finished a study, uh, and maybe we'll do a podcast on this, um, the Next Generation of Giving study, the third since 2010 with BlackBot. Mm -hmm. And um, one way to make the case around responsive design uh, or mobile optimization is what are the generations using to make donations and, and to advocate? And the thing we see in the Next Generation of Giving report, which can go hand in hand with this report, is that all age subsets um, are moving to very large percentages, whether they're Gen X, Gen Y, uh, boomers, or matures even of using mobile devices to make donations uh, or to take action. So that, that is a clarion call um, that organizations need to do more. And I think important that if you haven't had experience with uh, um, understanding that responsive design question and whether it's worth um, the idea of do we have that um, mobile optimized version, which maybe is a little slimmer, has fewer um, navigation options on every single page, but more directed trees and all sorts of other things to think mobile first design your site from that mobile experience first mm -hmm. and then let it expand into the desktop experience and often yep. the reverse process works really well mm -hmm. it's not easy to take a big desktop site and shrink it down to mobile it can be mm -hmm. done and you can create that but thinking the other way around and thinking um let's create this site that works really well on smaller devices, and then what does it look like on a big, you know, twenty-one inch monitor? Well, it, you know, it looks pretty, um, but it's not as clogged and crowded. And I think mm -hmm. that sometimes when we look at those older sites that were designed, you know, more than five years ago, that um, had all that screen real estate, and and charities that I've worked with anyway tend to use every single square inch of it. And you're like, oh, give give people mm -hmm. some space to breathe and, yeah. and make yeah. decisions. So if you've not done this before, go to a mobile responsive site. Um, you know, next to nonprofits.com is one, for example. Shrink mm -hmm. it uh, on your desktop. Just mm -hmm. minimize the window and start making the window smaller and smaller, and you'll see in front of your eyes, the site reorganizes itself. Menus collapse into little three dash hamburgers and, you know, all these things happen. And whatever size screen somebody is using, you know, if it's a relatively small phone or a relatively large phone or a tablet yeah. or an iPad or, a you know, whatever, you'll get the same content, but a very different visual presentation of it mm -hmm. without having to do all that extra work of creating yeah. a secondary version with more limited navigation or whatever. But you're right. I think there's a lot of folks that have invested a lot in that maybe more um, CRM driven website uh, mm -hmm. where the, the construction of it is actually built out of databases and not really something that was um, taken apart and, and constructed in, in something that was designed to do that. So in those cases, if you've really got that investment and you're thinking, if we just add the mobile optimized version for these choices, that might be less expensive, easier, keeps our investment. Um, but uh, really interesting to kind of pair that with the other questions you had about the age of the organization and do you just start with a mobile first strategy if you're newer? And I think most organizations are finding that easier. Well, it's interesting. When I look uh, in our uh, mobile survey stats, where 40% of organizations um, who were polled have mobile donation forms, I, I, I think that's worrisome. Um, when we look at the next generation of giving study, um, you know, 
boomers and matures are using mobile devices uh, to give. And if we know that if giving is fundamentally emotional uh, and we have these damn things in our hands all the time, um, then we need to be prepared for all eight subsets to, you know, through an emotional, something happens in the world, more and more every age subset is going to pick up that device that's sitting right beside them and want to do something. Um, we need to see more than 40%, uh, absolutely. All right, I've got to, because we're running very low on time here, I want to jump us to kind of the burying the lead a little bit, I think, because this website conversion final chapter that you're highlighting um, out of this data is our biggest area overall of um, possible improvement, uh, mm -hmm. where in general, almost any organization has got more opportunity to do better in what do we mean by converting uh, a, a a visitor to our mobile platforms if they're coming in from the website they come in from email first wherever they're coming from um, how do we quote unquote convert them so Ryan what do we mean by a website conversion well I mean it, generally from a from a fundraising perspective conversion means um, uh, get a donation out of them in an right. ideal uh, from an ideal point of view it's, it's convert them to become a monthly or sustaining donor um, but the but the reality is there's the conversion can mean a number of things um, and and it, the the full contextual picture is that conversion means um, getting people from the, the top of your funnel to the bottom, the bottom meaning the destination or your goal. And so sometimes that is converting to be a donor. Sometimes that is just email capture. Sometimes that is um, signing a petition or um, downloading something um, or, you know, kind of leaving a comment on something. So that there's a number, I think conversion actually um, can mean a lot of things. The main point is to have these funnels in place and to track um, in the first place to track it all. So the, this, the, your, your point that this is, this is actually a major area. I completely agree with, um, only 30% of respondents track basically what their website users and visitors, where they're coming in from and where they're going. And that's, that's deeply concerning. Yeah. I, I like to call it the, uh, our sectors, um, view of things as an act of God. Um, you know, we, we, we've got our site and stuff will happen and people will either take action, leave their contact information uh, or make a donation. And, you know, that's that. So, so for me, um, this is just a reminder of what I'm seeing in the sector and I'm sure it's what Ryan sees and all of us do that, you know, we need to be able to track and by tracking, it means we can test conversion journeys, right? We can test the efficacy of different approaches, um, you know, and by tracking, we can then test and control, uh, get benchmarks, improve those numbers and move away from this active God uh, digital perspective on conversion and, and become much more empirical. Uh, I mean, it's what the, the commercial sector does um, ruthlessly and rapaciously. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, for all the right reasons um, for that sector, but we need to be the same and we, we're just not. Um, and and so that either means, and we go back to other reports and other years, you know, looking at the alignment of staffing and skill sets and structure. So you may not have the right people to be able to do this either internally or externally. You may not have the skill sets 
to build the analytics that can track all of this and test it. Um, and you may not be structured in a way where the people who can do this are reporting to the other people who can then take action to improvement yeah. and all of those things. So, so I think uh, this is something about we have limited resources in the sector. Um, and so we have to choose very wisely around skill sets to invest in or people um, internally or externally to be able to do this tracking and analytics and testing. Mm -hmm. I think it's important here as you looked at this call to action mentality that there was a day um, when the, the web was new and we were all very excited where we talked about hits, right? Uh, what does that mean? Well, it means, you know, there was a web page served to somebody. Um, did it impact them? Did they do anything about it? No idea. Just that was what we were measuring. And we were really excited about it when it was more than last month. As long as there's more traffic than last month, we feel like we've done a good job. Um, and I, I joke with clients as I'm talking to them, it's like, if, if that's still what you're looking at is like, did we have more traffic than last month? Um, you know, give me 50 bucks on a Russian bot farm and, you know, we'll have everything you need. Right? Um, those, those were simpler times for sure. Right. But, but Russian bot farm. Yeah. But, you know, if, if what you want is not just visitors, but visitors that, that care about you, that are engaged in your work and that do a thing. They make a donation, they sign up for email, they volunteer their time, they do something. Um, yeah. And this call to action measure is really important. You've got to be very clear in that website. We want you to do something. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, I think that, that 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 day of, you know, well, we need people to be aware of us. What, what does that mean? What does aware of you mean? Um, well, I, it's, I, Steven, I think it's a really good point. And I, and I want to, I want to bring up a kind of a related point and that is um, essentially social media in a nutshell, yeah. but uh, specifically that it seems like in the last couple of years, boards and EDs and essentially kind of C-level folks um, are understanding that you need to have a social media presence and that there needs, you need to hire someone. And so there tends to be some sort of, some sort of social media coordinator person um, yeah. who's doing a lot of tactical work to get the brand awareness there, right? Like from here to there, to, to improve it, to increase it. Um, to, so that organizations, we can see that they're, they're tracking things like reach and hits to your point. And so this, mm -hmm. this, I think social media, we're at this place with social media when it comes to nonprofits where it still is, it's almost like websites were 10, 15 years ago where we're really just happy for like people to, yeah. um, to kind of like be engaging and using. But I uh, strongly am advocating wherever I possibly can. Um, and I'm sure that Mike would agree that we are now at a stage where social media needs to have, it needs to be under the umbrella of big picture digital and there needs to be a strategy. Um, and so something like, like the focus uh, on page 18, we talk about this a little bit. Um, and one of the points is focus less on traffic and more on optimization. So it's, and this is actually a similar point to what we were making about um, email deliverability. It's less about the quantity and more about the quality. There's so much noise out there. Yeah. We need to do a better job, be more conscious of finding that, that signal to noise ratio. Mm -hmm. And we, we are very much running out of time, but um, you do have a moment of look ahead. What, what might we be talking about as you talk about those social channels? And there's a wonderful graphic, I think, in this report that I encourage everybody to take a peek at that um, asks people, you know, are you thinking about increasing your focus on some of these tools or decreasing your focus or maybe kind of keeping it in the same area? Uh, and I think it's really interesting to see those, res those responses. We can't go over all of them, um, but I do want to just kind of call out specifically things like um, a Twitter chat versus 
using Twitter um, or Snapchat versus you know spending your time on other networks uh, and seeing where people's um, measure and response is coming from. Mm-hmm. That uh, sometimes I will hear from clients like, "Boy, you know, we we need to be on network X because there's so many people there." And the question for them is, "Are those people that will engage with you on that platform?" Mm-hmm. Just because there are people on that platform doesn't mean mm-hmm. that that's the platform for you to engage with them. And we're seeing some of that in the look ahead area, I think, where um, some of these organizations are actually planning to focus less on Snapchat because it's not an organizational engagement tool. Um, It doesn't work that well for most of us. Now, there's, of course, exceptions. There are going to be charities where that will be a good tool. But for a lot of us that kind of jumped in like, oh, it's the next big thing. There's so many people. Yes, there's a lot of people, but it's not the same kind of space as other things are. So um, Mm -hmm. as we get ready to wrap up, uh, Michael, why don't you kind of kick us off with any observations you want to make sure to hit in that area? Yeah, when we look at what what's ahead and what people want and desire to invest in, we've seen this over four years, and that's video. And they've said it consistently over the four years. So they they understand the role of more, you know, more intimate communications to to communicate brand and mission and to get people to take action. So I think for organizations, they're saying we know video is important. We know seeing people and listening to them is important. How can we afford to do it? And how do we do it in a way that fits who we are and the culture of the organization? And and how does it lead uh, strategically to getting people to do more or give more? So we've seen that for four years. It hasn't changed. Uh, I think people are still struggling to figure out how can I afford to do it? How often do I do it? Uh, and how can it lead to strengthening my organization? So that for me, that's key. And Ryan, what do you um, want to call out specifically in, in that looking ahead moment? Well, I think I, I think what what I my final thoughts on this are I am uh, happy to see that organizations are starting to get more strategic about um, various platforms, basically yeah. social social network platforms. So I would like to see now that we're starting to see like okay, Snapchat is is um, yes, there's a lot of people. And no, they're not the right people. <laughs> let's let's not invest any more time and, and budget there. I I um, I'm glad to see that, and I want to see more of that. I want to see um, a more qualitative um, uh, approach and a kind of critical approach to um, social media in general and social networking platforms. Um, and so it, so it's not just a kind of a, some sort of knee-jerk reaction, like this is where everyone is or this is where the kids are, we need to be there, but more of a, well, if this is our mission and these are the campaigns we have to advance our mission, what, which platform do we think, considering the campaign we have, is going to best serve our needs and what does success look like, right? Like we need to start asking these actual, tangible, specific questions that are strategic questions. They're the same questions that other departments, like fundraising especially, um, have been, uh, you know, have been, have kind of driven for, for years and for decades. Yeah. And we need to start applying that same level of strategic oversight um, to all things digital, most, like mostly including um, social network platforms. Well, now I'm wishing that I had started at the end and gone backwards because there's so much more to say on this topic, but we are really just out of time. So uh, people are going to need to go get the report for themselves, dig in, and then, yes, have the conversation um, online in other spaces uh, about what your opinions and ideas are. So, uh, um, Michael, where where can people download this report? Oh, boy. I mean, CARE2 has... Um, yeah. uh, 
the URL and, and Ryan, I'll pass it to you if yes. you've got the URL. <laughs> absolutely. Um, absolutely. Yeah. There's actually, there's actually two. Uh, so there's the, the digital outlook report URL, which is um, care2services.com forward slash 2018 digital outlook report. But uh, the easier way is really just to Google um, uh, 2018 digital outlook report and it should pop up, but it, it's hosted by care Two. Um, and that's where you can download the report. The second thing just uh, um, to mention is also that we have a white paper that we came up with, uh, uh, came out with a couple months ago on email, the new, it's called the new rules for email deliverability. And it's really a deep dive into this area of kind of data hygiene and email health. Um, and that, uh, that you can also basically uh, Google the new rules for email deliverability. And if you go to the care2services.com website, there's also a blog post uh, by the founder of Care2 and co-author of the report. His name is Randy Painter. He's got some really cool and interesting things to say. And for both of those things, we will ask for your email address because we are keenly aware of, a, of conversion funnels. <laughs> That's right. Practicing what you preach. Exactly. Excellent. Excellent. So I, I do highly encourage everybody. We'll have the link in the show notes too for organizations that um, want to come back and, and see this. It is not uh, um, a, a huge amount of time to um, at least understand the, the basics, but there are some great um, recommended next steps depending on where your organization is. So sort of the, you know, if you're not doing well here, maybe think about these things, but if you're doing well, here's some next steps that you can really consider. So some good calls to action, again, practicing what you preach in the report. So everybody, please go get it. Um, share your thoughts on it uh, in the social channels for all the organizations. And I just want to thank you both so much for taking your time to talk about it today. So uh, Ryan Miller, Director of Nonprofit Services at Care2 and Michael Johnston, Founder, HJC. Thanks for your time today. Thank you, thank so, you so much. much